the version of our most extraordinary selves that can be revolutionary. It's not the ones that fit this narrow definition. It's the ones that we define on our own terms, in our own communities, in our own context. Welcome to Little Revolutions, brought to you by Frida. This is a series of conversations about the double standards, societal problems, and systemic injustices that feel bigger than any one of us. Every week, we talk to someone who's questioning the norms and rewriting the script. They're activists and politicians, artists and athletes, and many, many more. Each one of our guests talks us through relatable little revolutions they're making in their own lives and the ways in which we can all be changemakers, whoever we are. On today's episode, we talk to author and journalist Rainsford Stauffer. In this conversation, we discussed how to feel enough in a world where there is so much pressure to be extraordinary and how to trust your own path in the face of so many societal expectations. How is your day going, Rainsford? It's going good so far. I just moved into this apartment and so it's in that interesting phase of figuring out what the flow looks like in this space. Um, but I'm very excited that this is one of the first work things I get to do. That feels really good. It also feels like just from, from what we can see, a really beautiful space. Thank you. So to get us started, um, we don't like to define people. So I want to let you introduce yourself and define yourself however you want. Oh my gosh. Um, my name... No pressure. <laughs> yeah, no pressure at all, ever. My name is Rainsford Stoffer. I am a freelance writer and author from Kentucky. What else can I say to introduce myself? I'm a cat lover um, and I love to read and write. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to add to your, your introduction, which I tend to do with everyone. You're the author of two books and you've written for basically everyone about being in our 20s and like all the, all the many things it encapsulates, right? The, the struggles of it, the like the pressures and like the impossibilities and to dive like right into the deep end. I'm curious if you could share, also, I should caveat before I even ask the question, I'm going to encourage you to do something you maybe don't do as much in other interviews where, because you're a journalist, you're so good at telling other people's stories. And in this conversation, we're going to try to get to your story more than all the other stories that you will maybe be inclined to turn to. So I'll just keep trying to bring you back to yourself. With that, so much of your work is about our 20s and all of that. And I'm curious about what it's been like for you in your 20s, right? Like what what have been the the impossible standards, the the definitions you've had to rewrite, the like the moments of like this doesn't feel like the movies or the books or the pop songs or whatever it is and hmm something needs to change. It's such a good question because I think that that's kind of one of the things that brought me to thinking about so many of the things I write about was from a fairly early age in my early 20s specifically thinking this does not, this feeling does not match how I thought this was supposed to look. And I think it is because especially in America, there is such a dominant narrative around that period of the 20s and especially the early 20s, I think, where it's the time for all the big adventures, finding the right job, finding the passion, finding the circle of best friends. And mine just felt so much messier than that. I went to college my first year. I was extremely depressed and ended up leaving school um, for a couple years before I went back. And when I did go back, it was online while I was working this full-time job that I had kind of stumbled my way into. And none of these things felt inherently bad to me, but it did feel very much like I had stepped off of the script that I was supposed to be following. And so when I started thinking about that in regard to my own life, it brought up these bigger questions of, Whose script is this anyway? Who's writing it? Who benefits from me following it? Why can't I get it right? And that led me to kind of reconsider what I thought right was to begin with. Was it following someone else's script or was it trying to write my own? And that happened to coincide with getting to talk to a lot of people from all different parts of the world, all different parts of America, all different parts of life who were in all different stages trying navigate this feeling of I'm never doing quite enough and I don't understand why that is. This was supposed to be the time of my life and it's just not. And I think that it was those conversations that really fundamentally changed how I thought about not just my own 20s, but this period of life and how it's projected upon and shaped in general. And was that when you say that it, it didn't feel the way you thought it was supposed to feel? 
Yeah. Where where was the like and I, I imagine so much of it is just in the air, right? There, there's the intangible of like what we think it's supposed to feel. But what were you feeling? And especially in the moments like which felt like the pivotal moments where you were like, okay, something is off. How were you feeling in those moments? And what, what did you think you were supposed to be feeling? Honestly, the first feeling that comes to mind that how I was feeling was shame. I felt so ashamed that I couldn't figure it out. I felt like such a failure. And I was someone who prided myself on trying to take chances and trying to put myself out there, even though it doesn't feel like it's in my nature. I tried very hard to do that when I was young, which of course led to some spectacular misfires, but was probably a good thing to practice. And for whatever reason, I just felt so unsettled, so untethered to anything. I didn't feel grounded or attached to very much. And I think that that led to a sense of shame and a sense of guilt that I had been given so many opportunities and felt like I couldn't figure out how to make the most of them or how to piece them together. And then, of course, I think that there's this sense of comparison where you're looking at the version of life that everyone else is deciding to share and thinking, okay, they know what they're majoring in in college. They have managed to stay in college the entire time. They know what they're doing. They have this circle of friends. They have all of these things that I could have, would have, should have had if I had just done the right thing. And I felt like I was supposed to be feeling a sense of confidence that to be honest with you, I still don't feel. I still don't think that my version of feeling confident or being confident looks the way I thought it would, especially at that time in my life. I imagined myself feeling all of a sudden very empowered and a real go-getter and like I always had a plan and I learned very quickly that just because you have a plan doesn't mean that's how the plan is going to happen and at some point you have to be okay with that and you have to be able to adjust but it took me a long time to start unraveling the shame that I felt from not being able to do that the way I thought I was supposed to. There are two things that stick with me everything you said one is the shame side right where I think it's so relatable to all of us, especially women, right? Like, we're never going to be enough and feel like shit for not being enough um, in whatever way. And I have tried really hard to, like, unravel this in my own life of, like, where is this coming from? Who's who's saying this? And am I brave enough to actually question them? And for me, the answer is often, no, I'm just going to avoid seeing them now because this is stressful. Were there, were there places or people where you felt safe? having these conversations who were like creating a separate model for Rainsford, you do you and like you be you and you are enough? Or were there people or places where you were getting the shame more than others in terms of like, you must be on this linear path that doesn't seem to exist, but everyone else is on and like, Oh, that's such a great question on on the positive side, the people who were telling me I was enough as is and that it was okay to fall off track. And furthermore, what does off track even mean? I'm very fortunate that I have a family who is supportive and empathetic and never held me to any standard other than you need to be a good human being. You need to try to put good things into the world. It is your job to try and take care of other people where you can. I got very, very lucky in the sense that I did not have familial pressure to live up to some sort of academic standard or career standard or, or some other standard of what my personal life ought to look like. And I, that is all to the credit of my family. I can take no credit for that, but I am very privileged to be in that position. And you couple that with, I have some wonderful friends who never quite understood why I felt so ashamed of myself and really encouraged me twice at where that was coming from and the hold that it had on me. I feel very lucky that I got to have frank conversations with people in my life, especially around that time about like, look, this doesn't feel like it's working and I don't know why, but I think I need to try something else. On the flip side of that, I do feel like there were a lot of uh, people in my life at that time. It was usually professors or bosses or people that I just kind of knew in passing, but I wouldn't say knew me personally very well, who just didn't get it. Um, I remember having a conversation with a professor right before I decided to leave school and he just could not wrap his head around why I was having such a hard time because academically I was doing fine 
And I wasn't able to articulate it at that point, but what I was feeling was extremely depressed. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I didn't know how to do the things that everyone else was doing. I was also, at the time, one of the only people that I knew, and granted a very limited social circle, who was working almost full-time while in school. And that created kind of an interesting divide that I couldn't put words to at the time and would not have named it as something that felt isolating at the time. But in retrospect, it definitely did. And then I think you blanket on top of that what you've already alluded to, this idea that there's just kind of this cloud of pressure over all of us that certainly manifests in different ways based on who someone is, based on their circumstances, based on a million structural factors, but this overwhelming idea that no matter what we do, we're never gonna be quite enough. And that's supposed to be the thing that keeps us going. That's supposed to be the motivator. And I think for me at that point of my life, having the opportunity to be seen and heard by people who were listening to me when I said, it's not motivating, I think it's destroying me, is just the ultimate gift and one that I will be trying to pay forward however I can for the rest of my life. So interesting that you call it a motivator. I would never think of it as a motivator because like it's, and I, I think it's the, like I, for me at least, I have reached the point now where I'm just so tired of trying to prove that I am enough. Like yes. Recognizing that the, the definitions or the ideas people have of, like the perf, not even perfect, right? Just a, a person in in the spaces I'm in, or at my age, or where I live, or whatever it is. Like I will never fit into it. And like, why do we have to prove people wrong? Like, why can't we just exist and that be that be it, right? Like that's enough. And I want to clarify. I also personally never found this motivating. Um, one of the things that came up when I was reporting on ambition for the second book was this idea that this is all part of the hustle, right? Like it's it's supposed to motivate you to do better if you know you're not the best. It gives you a little extra to work toward, all that striving. And I think that I think that that's such a limiting line of thought because I think number one, it defines for us what enough is supposed to be and feel like in ways that I think are very commercialized, are very unrealistic, are very unresponsive to the actual circumstances people are dealing with and the resources they do or do not have. And I think it's such a broken idea of what it means to aspire to something, that this idea that we're not good enough is somehow supposed to be the thing that gets us to strive for more. It's just, it's the most backward logic I can imagine. It also, it it harkens back to something you mentioned about you had a full-time job while you were getting an education, <laughs> both of which are full-time jobs, and and you were struggling, and it was like, a, oh, this is a surprise, and so many of us deal with it in different ways at different points in our lives, right, where there is, there's just no way to, to tick all the boxes and to... To, like I was an international student and I didn't have a support system in the country where I was studying and it was like I don't I, I don't know what I'm how I'm supposed to do these things right like I'm supposed to live off campus and I literally don't have someone who can sign a guarantee for an apartment for me and the system is broken um, but I have nowhere to live otherwise you have you're doing a, a full day of work and you have another full day of work and you're like probably 18 19 and it's like wow this is why am I struggling? I wonder, is there something wrong with me? And it's just like, why? How? Which isn't even really a question, but how? No, no, but it is the question, I think, because you're so right. And I think about this all the time when I talk to young people. I get so frustrated. I know that you'll relate to this. Seeing these headlines on what's wrong with the youth today? Why are the youth so stressed out? It's like, look around. <laughs> look at what is going on in the world, in their communities, in their own minds, in the expectations we're putting on them. When I look back on that time of my life in retrospect, there is no question that I was a very privileged young person. I still am. I have a lot of advantages that a lot of other people do not have. And my situation certainly could have been harder, but I also look back at my younger self with a lot of empathy because I could not figure out why I was having such a hard time. And I really felt like it was something wrong with me. And when I zoom out now, I think 
you're on this campus, you're getting this degree, but you don't really know why you've signed to take on debt that you really don't understand. And you're not really supposed to ask questions about that. And you're commuting 45 minutes each way to this job that you really like, but you're also burnt out. It's just like so many compounding factors. And I think one of the most detrimental things we do to young people is divorce them from the structure and the circumstances in which they're existing. And we don't look at any of the barriers or the reasons that someone might be struggling. We just look at young people and are like, you're young, you'll figure it out. You have all of this time. And it remains one of the most frustrating things that I hear about even in my reporting. This idea that everyone is supposed to be fine no matter what, that you're supposed to figure it out. And that just completely dismisses for how many people figuring it out is a luxury that they do not have. So given the fact that you, we were all young people once, um, you were what, you were, we're still young, but you were once the, the student who was deciding whether you wanted to stick it out and whether it made sense for you. And it's also interesting where the way you tell the story now is you were feeling a lot of pressure and shame and from this distance and the years I have of distance as well from my younger self where I'm like, but that was so brave, right? That seems so much more like bravery than shame to me. Um, but was there a moment where you recognized this, where you were like, the system is broken and I need to get out to take care of myself? Was there like a, a catalyst or was it just a slow process for you to, to figure this out? That's a great question. And in, in terms of actually leaving school, it just got to the point where my mental health was so bad. And again, I don't think that that's something I was articulating to people at the time. I just knew I felt bad. I was depressed and did not have language to explain that. But I knew that I felt too terrible to keep doing what I had been doing. And I felt like I had this job that I really liked. I'm just going to keep doing that for a while. I waited until the end of the year to leave, which I think helped make it a little less abrupt than it would have been otherwise, because I really did want to leave after the first semester um, and didn't because I, I wanted to make sure I had given everything time to kind of fully pan out and shake out however it was going to. And at the time, I remember spinning that outwardly as a very entrepreneurial thing, like, I'm rethinking my education. I'm going off on my own path. And deep down in my gut, I was terrified. I was completely humiliated. I was absolutely ashamed. And I was trying very hard to convince myself that I had made a really intentional choice when in reality, I was just too broken and too scared to keep doing the thing I had been doing. And it honestly wasn't until later when I was having conversations with other young adults and had been looking into different inequities across higher education and different ways that the system was so broken, so fundamentally in so many ways that I looked back at my own experience and was like, oh, <laughs> there are elements of this other thing going on. This was not a decision that was made in, the va in a vacuum. This was not an individualized experience. It's that you, for whatever reason, weren't clicking with how this is quote unquote supposed to go. And now I know, you know, there's all kinds of different reasons people leave school. There's all different reasons people are pushed out of school. And those things are structural, not personal. When I left school, it did not feel like some sort of intentional, empowered choice I was making. It felt like I was really lost. Um, and it took me a long time to be able to be honest about that. I tried very hard to spin it as I have a plan, even if it's not the plan that I was supposed to have. And in reality, I truly did not. Do you think after that, it's been, I don't want to use the word easier, but you've been more aware when making choices, not maybe not to that level of massive life choice, stepping away from like a carved out path into a path that makes more sense for you. But has it, been has it been easier or have you been more aware of it? Or has it always been a moment of like reckoning where you have to think through, well, I'm not doing what everyone else said. I'm doing what I want to do. I don't know if it's gotten easier, but it has certainly gotten more intentional. I think that I still feel a lot of anxiety, a lot of pressure over not being good enough. I think that that is probably going to be something I am reckoning with for the rest of my life in some form or another. But I think that the decisions are definitely more intentional now. I think when I make choices that 
stray from the quote unquote traditional path or do things a little bit differently. I think now I have reasons that I know I'm making the decision I'm making. I'm not typically, or I try very hard to not make decisions out of panic or just not knowing what else to do. And the bigger thing for me, I think, is that I've tried to get away from making decisions based on what I think I am supposed to be doing. And that's been one of the most uncomfortable parts of being later into adulthood, I think. I think it's been one of the most important, but also one of the most challenging, because by nature, I am a people pleaser. I am a firstborn child. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. I I like to do things well. And I think that it has definitely been a process to kind of unravel, okay, but what does well mean for you? Because I found myself in these situations where I was saying yes to things or I was trying to hang on by my fingernails to the path I was supposed to be on. And I realized that I might be making other people more comfortable because I could comfortably share this is my job in one simple sentence, or this is where I live in one simple sentence, but I felt terrible. I didn't feel like myself. And so one of the things that I feel like I'm continually practicing is how do I make decisions that actually feel like me? And again, I think that'll be a lifelong thing that I have to practice, but the intention to do it is there now. I also, like, I I quit very stable job and continents a couple of times, and in that process of like stepping out of the the path that was like in front of me potentially um i remember going through this for a few years where i felt like i had to explain myself especially to my parents right and i would like i would practice my my narrative like i would it would be something i would i would think about like how to how to find examples of like people who have done it well before me i would like collect my data and like ensure i wanted to ensure that i was like making informed decisions but it was all like I wanted to be able to justify it because I felt like people were going to judge me. And so I always went into conversations with like so much ammo almost and like so ready to like really like defend my point. And I'm very grateful that it sounds like your parents, like mine, were very just like, we want you to be happy. We want you to be a person who's like mm-hmm. value to the world in whatever way makes sense for you. And like at the end of the day, if you're not happy, you know, that that's what matters to us. And also, why are you giving us like a two page justification for the decision? <laughs> like we're, we've lost, like they would like move on from the conversation and be like, and then I met this person and they did this and they did that. And did you find that you found yourself justifying less? with time or is that just me no first I'm so glad that I'm not the only person who's coming to conversations with my data points and my anecdotes and so ready to prove it and mine wasn't to my parents but it was to just an endless list of other people including people that in retrospect were not going to be factors in my life in any kind of way that was significant or consistent but I felt so much pressure to prove I know what I'm doing and I promise it's a real thing and I promise it makes sense and let me show you. Now I'm trying very hard to get away from that justification. And this is actually, this is a great question because it's been something that's been on my mind, especially in the past year where my life kind of got thrown off the personal life trajectory that I thought I was on. And it's been very heartbreaking. It's been very hard. And I found myself retreating into that justification mode of, my next steps, I need to prove that they're the right ones. I need to be able to show people that I know what I'm doing. And I think the biggest shift over the past couple of years is that now I can give myself a little bit more grace and slow down and say, I actually don't know. And for now, that's going to have to be okay, which is a terrifying thing to utter even to yourself, but getting away from having to prove everything, including to myself, I think is probably the most freeing thing that I will ever learn how to do for myself if I can figure it out fully. It is definitely a work in progress. How do you turn down the volume on the world though? Like I wrote down, I promise I know what I'm doing. And it's interesting because for me, after that question, the like justification I had to do to the world a lot more, or I felt like I had to. I remember when I moved to London and I posted a photo on my Instagram story of like, the keys to the place I was moving into. And it had been years since I had like a permanent address. And I got all these DMs being like, Masuma, we thought you were going to live like this adventurous, interesting life. And these were people I hadn't 
I'd maybe spoken to once or twice. I hadn't spoken to in years. And I, I was like, oh, I need to prove that I'm good, right? Like, I need to prove. And for me, eventually it was like, I just, I won't share pieces of my life or I will delete the app. But it's, it's also hard if that's where you find community, which is true for most of us in some way or in the other. And like, how do you turn down the volume on the world saying you're not doing it right or this is how you should be doing it or look at you, you're on the wrong path and we all know what's best, even though none of us are doing the right thing, it turns out. Like, how do, how do, how do you personally do it? First of all, I just have to say, I cannot imagine anyone thinking that your life was not adventurous, adventurous or interesting. That boggles my mind. Um, as someone who is such a fan of you and the work you do. I think for me, I, I deal with very similar feelings and I have noticed a pattern where a lot of times that noise, that chaos, that volume of you're not doing enough or why aren't you doing it this way was coming from people who don't know me very well or don't know me at all. And so what I've tried to do, and again, this is something I'm very much still in the depths of practicing, so I'm by no means an expert, I realized that I was listening to the wrong people. And I had the volume turned up on people who didn't know me. They didn't know what I was trying to do in the world. They didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. They couldn't tell you anything really about me other than what they thought they knew and what they were seeing maybe to some degree online. And it dawned on me one day, I, I'll never forget it. I was out for a walk. I was on the phone with a friend. That's one of my favorite things to do is go for a long walk and call a friend to catch up. And it was something about talking to her just kind of caught me, I guess, the right way that day to have this epiphany of I'm putting so much stock and so much faith and so much time in people who are not part of my life for whatever reason. And what does it say about me that I'm putting more energy and introspection into their thoughts on what I'm doing than the people who know me, who have been in the trenches with me and held me up when I'm on the floor and taking care of me when I don't know how to ask for care? What does it say about me that I'm prioritizing that over these other people who have shown up time and time again? And I think that that was kind of a little bit of a gear shift in my mind where it's like, I think it's unrealistic, especially in the world we live in today, to act like you're never going to have to deal with outside noise or outside pressure or outside people who want to give their opinions solicited or otherwise on what you're doing. But I noticed that I could change who I was listening to and who I was giving the most airtime to. And sometimes, I'll be honest, it's even hard for me to listen to myself. Like when these people, whoever they are, are saying, well, I thought you were living here. I thought you were doing this. Why aren't you applying for this job? I had gut feelings about those things. I knew why I was doing what I was doing, but I struggled to listen to myself. And so I figured if... I can't listen to myself quite yet. If, if that's not enough right now, the next best thing I can do is listen to the people who care about me and who know me and who show up. And that's been the thing that I'm trying to practice. I love that so much because so much of the noise to me at least feels like we get, we get to feel like we're in conversation with lots of people. And for me, at least it ends up making me feel really lonely. Yes. Because you get to see how your life doesn't either match up to their expectation of it mm -hmm. or it doesn't look like the one that they are projecting out into the world. Like we don't even know what each other's lives look like at that point. It's just projections. 100%. Right? And I think your point about social media is such a good one because I also had a long stretch of time where I really stepped back from that. I was still looking at it. I just wasn't really sharing anything. And it's because I felt a little bit uncomfortable doing so. And it's been a place where I have fostered incredible relationships or friendships or connections, both personally and professionally, but I have had to get a lot more disciplined about how I use it because I think exactly to your point, it can be incredibly isolating to look at all these projections or have things projected onto you. And given the fact that like the world is telling us these things and we agree that like, the definitions are all silly. How did you personally start like figuring out how to redefine what? Like, I don't even know which words to use because all the words like 
I was thinking about this in preparing for our conversation and I agree with like everything that you stand for and also when it comes to like ordinary, extraordinary, right? The pressure to be extraordinary. I was like, oh, but I don't want to ask you like how you how you are okay being ordinary because the word ordinary doesn't feel like enough to me, right? Like it feels like I'm passing judgment on on you and then I, I got to enough and I was like, but isn't everyone enough? So then what's the what's the purpose of the question? But it's like, how do you define your own roadmap, right? How did you like, how did you start doing that where you were like, these are the definitions that aren't working, like very clearly, like it's a, I, I'm not on this path. I need to figure out what my path is. How did you how did you start that? I love this question because I also when I was writing the first book and when I was writing my second book about ambition, it was a very similar process of thinking about these words and the expectations people have them, the way they are used as labels, the subconscious meanings we kind of assign. And I also went back and forth on ordinary, extraordinary, but isn't everybody extraordinary just because they are? Is it okay if we're not? And I recall uh, around the time the first book came out, someone told me, but what if I want to live an extraordinary life? And I think the thing about that is that most of us do. I think it's just a gear shift on what extraordinary means. I think that the fact that you and I get to have this conversation, the fact that I got to talk on the phone to a friend last night, the fact that my cat is laying over there in the sun, those are extremely ordinary things. Maybe this conversation is more on the extraordinary side, but in general, these are ordinary everyday experiences and they make up the fabric of my life. And it would not be truthful for me to tell you that I don't find those things extraordinary because I really do. And I think that my process for kind of unraveling that is knowing that we're never going to be free of societal expectations. I hope I'm wrong about that, but because they are so enforced structurally and systemically and so many people profit off of us feeling and thinking this way, it's hard for me to see that, at least in the next 10 years, we'll say, becoming a reality where we're all somehow divorced from expectations of what it means to live a quote-unquote good life or fulfilled life or have a meaningful life or career or insert in there whatever you want. But I have noticed through conversations with other people that when I slow down and I notice the things that truly make me happy, not necessarily the happiest I'll ever be, but just happy, or make me feel good. Again, not necessarily the best I'll ever feel, but just good enough. All of a sudden, I had an awful lot of things to count that were not appearing in the textbook definition. And so I think that the practice for me kind of started with pointing out very concrete things. My coffee tasted really good this morning. I got to talk on the phone to a friend. I'm going to call my mom later. I Whatever it is. I got a book from the library I'm super excited to read. I think that when I started trying to quantify those things and add them up the same way we're expected to add up big wins at work or school, big accomplishments, big swings, big moves, all this big stuff, I had an awful full definition going on over here on the other side. And again, I think... There are always flashes of, I'm not doing enough, I'm settling, whatever that means, I'm falling behind. But I think the question that I try to ask myself when those things come up is, okay, behind who? And that clarifies a lot. It also feels like I'm a big believer in the, like, the small joys as well. And like, they make up our lives, right? And it's, it's interesting, as you were saying that I was thinking about like the big the big societal definitions of like success or enough or good or whatever word we choose, they don't include any of the small things. Never. By design, I think. Because I think that's one of the things I think a lot in terms of this whole sense of being behind, which is another thing that really came up for me throughout my 20s, especially in my early 20s. Being behind who? Why are these things not included in the definition when those are the things that fulfill the everyday? You know, I remember thinking about this when, the, when my first book came out, and maybe you'll relate to this as someone who's also published. That day felt like any other day. It was the biggest thing that had happened in my life so far. I think there was some subconscious part of me that expected to like wake up that day and feel like a brand new human being. 
like with a new understanding of the world, a new sense of self, like just fuller and more complete. And I tell this story because I, I'm very grateful for the experience I had. It was truly a dream come true. And I don't say this to minimize it, but I bring it up because I really expected that that accomplishment or achievement or opportunity or whatever word we want to throw in there was going to change my whole life. And it yeah. did change a lot. It created opportunities for conversations that were beyond my wildest dreams, including this one. It created the chance for me to write more, which I'll never take for granted. But it didn't fundamentally change who I was as a person. And I think that that's kind of how societies keep us hustling toward these big one shot, one opportunity wins is the idea that, you know, you're not just going to achieve this thing or get this job or do whatever this is, you're going to be a better person because you have done it, you are going to feel better. And so I think it's really disorienting when we do have that big moment, and suddenly feel very much like ourselves the whole time. Whereas these little things, these small joys, there's no expectation that they're going to change my life. They just make my life yeah the the big wins are also the big wins the big achievements are supposed at least in my mind are very cinematic whatever they are right like starting university graduating getting your first job whatever it is and that's also where the movie generally ends yes you never see what actually happens after because like the struggle is the movie mm -hmm. you, the thing happens and then you generally have 10 minutes after that and then it's done yeah I, I think that that's so true. I think it's it's the big ultimate thing. And, and I've talked to other people about this, both younger and older than I am. And I think it's it's very much the same thing throughout the lifespan. This idea that, well, once you hit X or once you do Y or throw Z in here, you're going to have transformed your whole life. And I personally just think transformation is a little bit more incremental than that. I think that we're kind of learning the whole time, but I hope we are. I hope I am. Um, and I think that's another reason that the small things are the ones that I retreat back to and that I find comfort in because there's not this expectation that me sitting on my couch and reading a book with my cat is going to change everything. It's just a pleasant thing and it can be just that. And it, yeah, it's, it's enough. Yeah. There's no value judgment there, right? It just is. It's, it's also the, the thing that I struggled with, I struggled with a lot present tense as well, um, is the like, the, the, the timelines of like the, the things were expected, expected by whoever, who knows who, who drew up this cultural norm, but they don't add up when you actually like step back. And the one that we've talked about before, and I think about a lot is like, when we're in any sort of education, that's supposed to be the focus, right? Especially going into our early 20s, like, work hard, get good grades, get the good job after. And then suddenly, especially, it's very gendered, so especially for women, it's like, why aren't you married? And it, it, I feel like I, I always feel like I missed a, a page, a chapter in the book where, like, something something shifted and yeah. the expectation changed entirely. So, like, why aren't you married? And then I'm not, and for my friends who are, suddenly the new chapter started is like, where's your child, right? The There's always like another thing and it always feels like we're missing, we're missing the boat and it feels like everyone is. Yeah. But also everyone else seems to be on the boat. And I think we all feel that way. And it's like, how do we, how do we tear that apart? How do we deconstruct it together? Oh, I wish I had the perfect answer to this question because I think I think it is the question. I think that to your point, you know, we think about these expectations of achievements by a certain age or by a certain time of life and in a certain order and a certain pattern. We think of that, I think, very commonly in regard to things like work and school, because in a way it's a little bit more streamlined to check those boxes. There's usually a trajectory of work or a trajectory of school, even if it's, you know, you're in a four-year college, you're pursuing a four-year degree and you know, okay, for four years, this is my focus. This is what I'm doing. But it also plays out completely on the personal side. I think of marriage. I think of having children. I think of this expectation in America that everyone needs to be a homeowner and that needs to happen by the time you're 30, otherwise why bother? Of course, 
divorcing this completely from everyone's economic or personal circumstances, I think that there's always another quote unquote milestone. And one of the things that I talk fairly extensively about with my friends, some of whom are, are married, some of whom have kids, some have neither, some are doing both, some have wonderful pets, like there's all different configurations. And I think there's a need to kind of create our own milestones and our own rituals and routines around celebrating them. And I bring up celebration specifically because I think that so many of these quote unquote achievements, whether they're personal or professional, are very grounded in the, the idea that those are big things that we're going to celebrate. You're going to get your degree and we are going to cheer you on because you did it. We're also societally going to expect you to move right on to the next thing, but we're going to acknowledge that the degree is an accomplishment. And I think all the time about what it would look like if that was more personalized. And I say personalized because I think we, we tend to individualize a lot of these things, and, and they are to some degree individual choices, but I think that that kind of sucks the community out of it. And that's what a lot of us are craving when we're deconstructing this idea of, I'm running out of time. I haven't met the milestone. I'm not doing the right thing. I think we're looking for people to be in the boat with us and validate that what we're doing is not just okay, it's good. And it's seen and noticed by the people we care about. And I think that there's probably an argument to be made that you should be able to stand alone in your choices and you don't need validation from anyone. But I think where that line of thought kind of trails off in a way that feels incomplete to me is that we all need people. We all need community who look at the path we're on and think, I'm so proud of my friend for making that choice. I'm so proud of my friend for trying that thing. And I think that that's how we deconstruct it. I think we take really concrete actions in our little communities, in our circles, to slow down and notice that there's all different ways a milestone can look. And some of them are going to pop up on the list of things to have quote unquote achieved by 30, and a lot of them aren't. And I think we're missing a lot of opportunities to celebrate each other and be proud of each other and in community with each other when we don't acknowledge the stuff that's never gonna be on a list like that. I really appreciate that you brought up community in this way and like, juxtaposed it with the like we should all be enough for, for <laughs> which I just find so irritating because yeah the, the world isn't set up for us to also like what a bleak life that would be if if we didn't love each other if we didn't like you know chat with our neighbors if like none of that was there and I like I personally struggle with this a lot even right now where it's like I live alone mm -hmm. um, so I have a full-time job, a very full-time job, which again, like I have all the privilege in the world. I have a very like comfortable life, but also I have to like take care of myself in all the domestic work. I have like health stuff I need to take care of. I'm expected to be a present friend. I'm expected to like, you know, be a present member of my family. I'm expected to be there for people. I'm romantically involved. And so it's, it's too much for one person to do everything in all the every, like in all the fullness of it, right? Yeah. We're supposed to be there for each other and also like build the boat together, maybe. It doesn't have to be my boat. It can be our boat. Exactly. And I think that that's, I, I'm sure, I'd love to trace like where this line of thought started because I would imagine the whole, I'm enough for myself as is on my own started with really good and empowering intentions and has been a little bit distorted or like run through a game of telephone where it came out on the other end sounding like, I don't need anybody. And I think that that very quickly also morphed into an expectation of why would you need help doing all those things? Why would you need someone to take care of you? Why shouldn't you be able to do all of this? Everyone else is. No, everyone else isn't. We, I feel like we've all been individually conditioned to believe every other individual is somehow doing it all alone. And I don't really think any of us are. To your point, one of the things that I think about a lot when I think of this kind of quote unquote empowerment of I'm enough as is on my own, you are. And if that feels good to you, then that counts too. That's valid. That's wonderful. But if that feels incomplete somehow, I think it is so valid to say I can stand on my own, but I'd rather stand over here with my neighbors or my friends or the community I've put together for myself. And I really hope, I think things are trending in this direction, but I really hope that 
needing other people and wanting other people in the boat with you to build the boat with you becomes a thing that is not admitting that you can't do it alone. It's that you want to do it a different way. It's not a deficit. It's an addition. It's the really cheesy of like two plus two can be five, right? Like yeah. it's really cheesy, but it works for a reason, I think, where and I think that the, the tension that you're getting at and I'm getting at here is a little bit of like the things that our generation and people younger than us are all craving, we're all craving are in some ways like the quote unquote, very like conservative things. It's like we want stability, right? That's what it is. At the end of the day, we want to have a livelihood. We want to know that our rights are inalienable. We want to be able to love who we love. We want to be able to have joy in our lives. We want to be able to rest. We want to be able to have a home that feels safe, which when you come down to that feels really basic. And then everything that is impeding that in any way is systemic, right? Like so much of what we are describing right now is much more than anything any one of us can attack or tackle on our own, really. But also we all have an agency, which is like the whole premise of this series. And I'm wondering, in the face of all that is systemic and broken, how do you hold on to hope? And where do you find hope? I find hope in other people. I find hope in other people who are practicing hope better than I am sometimes. And I, I say that kind of jokingly, but also it's true. I'm, I'm not an expert in any of this. I have my thoughts on how we fix the structural stuff. I have my thoughts on where we need to start. Even those are informed by people who have done the work and know better than I do. But what I do know is that time and time again, life shows me whether it's in my personal life, my professional life, a source I'm speaking to for a story, so many different ways. Life shows me that there are people who are committed to doing it differently. And they're committed to doing it differently to the extent that even if it doesn't structurally feel different in their lifetime, it still is their life's work. In their own way, it is still the thing that they are committed to doing for all of the people that are going to come after us who we don't want to have to deal with this or worse, even if we can't make it better, which I do believe we absolutely can, we can keep it from going on the trajectory it's going. And I find a lot of hope in that. I also find recently a lot of hope in needing other people. And as somebody who for a long time really felt like doing it myself was how I proved that I was capable and that I was worthy and that I was good. It has been a revelation to be able to say out loud, no, I can't. I need other people. I need to learn how to reach out to other people. I need to be a good friend and reach back. That needs to be a priority. I need to be a good community member who doesn't just show up in theory, but shows up as a presence as consistently as she can. And I find a lot of hope in that because I think that there's action there. I don't think it's just thinking about something. I think when we pull other people in with us or we reach out to other people or we help each other where we can, that to me feels tangible. It feels like we're taking action. We're taking a step. And I think that's also how we dismantle a lot of these expectations. We show ourselves it can feel different than this. It can be different than this. And so I think watching people reimagine that or reimagine these definitions of ordinary or ambition or all of these other things in their own lives is what gives me hope and helps me practice hope. Really beautiful. <laughs> um, my last question, which is our cheesy question that we ask everyone is, so this is called Little Revolutions, very much based on basically what we've been talking about, that there is so much that is like intractable and broken and all these definitions that we are all trying to rewrite, all these systems that we are trying to reimagine to make space for all of us. Um, and also we have agency in our own lives and we have to, right? Otherwise it's it's impossible to just keep doing the work of living. And thinking about, we reached out to you, and we, I wanted to talk to you about this specifically was the pressure to be extraordinary, right? And like, how do we, mm -hmm. how do we do that? So thinking about like the 18 year old who's listening to this or the 35 year old who's listening <laughs> to this, and feeling that pressure, what little revolutions do you think people can make in their lives to, to start making that change? Ooh, great question. 
I am a big believer in lists. I need to write something down with a pen and paper to be able to internalize it on any lasting level. So my little revolution, make a list of what makes up your day. And I don't really mean your schedule. I don't mean a to-do list. I don't mean, you know, the groceries you need to go get at some point or the fact that you haven't replaced your toothbrush in six months, whatever it is. I mean the things that you notice, whether it's that a friend asked you for advice and felt comfortable coming to you for your opinion, whether it's playing with your pet, a really cool tree outside your window, the little things that are significant enough that you in your mind notice them, write them down. And I think that that was kind of a game changer for me because it wasn't that I was blowing past these things. I was registering them in my brain, but they weren't going anywhere. They were getting sucked into this vacuum of, okay, that's not what I'm supposed to be focused on right now. In reality, I think it is. And I think that when we add all of those things up, there's a more complete picture of how valuable our lives are, how valuable we are, the kind of meaning that we can notice and create in those little patterns. And I think that the other little revolution that comes to my mind is reach out to other people, which is an incredibly hard thing to do. It's very intimidating and it can be very stressful and, and sometimes even feels lonely in and of itself. But when I sit there and I think about the pressure to be extraordinary, now what I think about is isolation. I think of sitting by myself, very still, very solemn, <laughs> trying very hard to get everything right. And while that might look good externally, I don't always think it feels great internally. Sometimes it does. And if it does for you in a given situation, that's fantastic. But I think that the pressure kind of makes us very compact. It makes us very narrow and chiseled in this certain way that doesn't allow us to expand, to change our minds, to see something in a different light, to reconsider something, to quit. And I've noticed that when I reach out to other people, whether it's a friend or family member or a mentor or honestly someone I think is cool on social media and I'd like to have a virtual coffee with to get to know, it allows me to expand in a way that the pressure to be extraordinary just doesn't. And I think that that's the version of our most extraordinary selves that can be revolutionary. It's not the ones that fit this narrow definition. It's the ones that we define on our own terms, in our own communities, in our own context. And I think that when we reach out and when we slow down to notice, we get a little bit closer to that definition. It just gave me chills. <laughs> I'm so flattered. I'm just rambling. I'm so nervous. You're so wise. <laughs> Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? No, these were, first of all, this flew by and these were such incredible questions. I feel like I'm going to be thinking about them all day. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Rainsford for this relatable and real conversation. Check out our show notes for more on how to follow her. This episode was brought to you by Frida. Our producers are Claire Richardson and Abisoye Adelusi, And I'm your host, Masuma Ahuja. Please don't forget to follow Little Revolutions wherever you listen to podcasts and to leave us a review. It really helps.